Hello, my name is John Schaefer and welcome to The Wealth Show, the new name for the CityWell Wealth Manager podcast. In this episode, I spoke with Harry Richards, who manages £13.3 billion across four Jupiter fixed income funds. Richards is among the youngest managers in the UK fund industry at 32. We spoke about whether he had been met with any challenges due to his age and the prospect of investing through a period of impending inflation. Well, Harry, thanks so much for joining me. Um, Perhaps we could get started with how you started your career in asset management and why you chose it as a career. Yes, I mean, I'm I'm a firm believer in in basically not many people really knowing exactly what they want to do from from a young age um, and then proceed to follow a career in that profession. And I I, I very much fell into that camp. I wasn't sure about exactly what I wanted to do, and that was a function of of awareness and and the actual scope of different options. I had a strong interest in finance uh, from, from a fairly early age, um, and I, I knew I wanted to obtain a better understanding of markets. But for me, you know, ending up here was a somewhat iterative approach. Um, I, through university, I, I went and did a internship in an investment bank in, in mergers and acquisitions, uh, and I enjoyed it, but it wasn't exactly what I was looking for. And I was fortunate enough to secure a job in, in private clients or wealth management. Uh, after after I left university at Jupiter. And through that role, I was meeting a lot of fund managers um, that, that manage different types of portfolios, equities, bonds, multi-asset, hedge funds, and so on and so forth. And in terms of engaging with them, I actually found what they did uh, really aligned with some of the things that I found really, really interesting, of getting a, a, a deep handle on how businesses um, evolve over time stress testing, modeling, um, and understanding how that affects asset prices uh, over time and, and trying to make money for clients. And so I think, I think, I think meeting those bond managers in particular uh, really ended up pushing me in that direction. And over time, I was lucky enough to basically uh, manage an internal transition uh, to the bond desk of Jupiter and, and the rest is history, I suppose. Good stuff. So I guess you started off from a kind of top-down multi-asset lens and then you, you narrowed it down to fixed income. Was there something specific about fixed income that you really liked? Um, great question. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, I think I think I really enjoyed the, the interplay of the macro and the micro, uh, and, and I, I wanted I wanted that in in my role. Um, I wanted to have um, exposure to both direction of kind of interest rates and global growth and inflationary dynamics and uh, how macroeconomics may evolve just as much as I wanted exposure to doing bottom-up research on businesses. And so big think I really played very neatly uh, into that um, with, I, I guess, exposure to initially being a high-yield analyst. You really get into the, into the weeds on doing stress testing of business models and understanding what's going to cause them to potentially remain a going concern or, or alternatively um, potentially uh, fall into a, a somewhat more unfortunate scenario. Uh, and default, and and simultaneously within fixed income, you have to manage things like duration and understand how how other externalities may affect how certain instruments trade, and, and so having a clear understanding of of global macro and having an interest in in geopolitics and um, and really the future of the world, it, it really seemed to sit neatly with with how I saw my career progressing and where my interest lay. As as a fund manager in the industry, you're you're on the younger side. Um, you're still thirty two. I think that's uh, that's what the, your PR PR said. Um, and 
I, I guess what what challenges do you feel you face being slightly younger in the industry? <laughs> I'll have a have a have a word with the PR team for these ways. But um, uh, on a serious note, um, I think I think it's a really interesting role um, for a few reasons. It's one of one of the few where the playing field is actually phenomenally flat and phenomenally level, um, and that's really because you're challenged with delivering performance for clients, and that's something that's extremely measurable. And there's not that many roles where. You know, the playing field is that level and you can get measured against people from a whole host of different backgrounds or, or different age categories. And so I would say that really, you know, I face exactly the same challenges as, as, as any other manager. And that's you know, trying to deliver the best performance you can for clients um, and, and making sure to communicate clearly about your strategy with them so they understand you know, the levers that you're pulling in your views uh, at different parts of the cycle or, or based on the conditions that you see and the risks to the prevailing narrative so i think i think it's quite a rare role um where yeah. where it doesn't sort of matter a great deal that's interesting so so you think all that really matters is is the performance essentially and and all the all the rest is noise essentially uh, yes uh, that's exactly that's exactly my view um and and uh and, and i think i think that uh, everyone has to start somewhere and and uh you know if you work hard and you really work on the performance hopefully everything else takes care of itself. In asset management, you have the idea of the star fund manager and you do get some very big personalities um, within that. And, and do you think that's perhaps an issue and, and perhaps discourages younger people getting into fund management? I, I wouldn't say so. Um, I think when, when, for example, I was, I was sitting in, in private clients and, and meeting fund managers and, and understanding how people thought, I think, if anything, you know, it can be it, it can be a good thing, but it's really case by case. Um, you know, I understand you know the business risk associated with with staff fund managers and, and key man risk, um, as as does everyone in the industry. But, but equally, um, some of these people are, end up being people that you look up to. And when when I was you know um, entering the industry and looking to to do what I do now, there, there were a whole host of people that I you know really enjoyed meeting and really liked um, what they did and how they'd achieved it. And so I think it, it can it, it can work both ways. And in, in some ways, it can be an attraction as well. It just depends on, on personalities. In terms of when you're pitching the, the fund to prospective investors, does, does being younger pose somewhat of a challenge? Do you find that um, there's a certain hesitation in meetings or, or, or things like that because you're a younger fund manager? Not, not, that, I've, not that I've ever found. Um, I think... Um, you know, if if those challenges are there, it's very likely that it's that it's in your head. I think if you're, you know, really on top of your portfolio, on top of the macro, on top of positions, and have a clear view as to how you think markets will evolve and, and the key risks to your base case, then 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 people listen and take you seriously. And and I've always found that clients have acted incredibly professionally, um, you know, with me and and. I'm sure they do with with other managers uh, of, of of a similar age. Um, you know, everyone everyone has to start somewhere, as I said. And so I think I think it's a function of as long as you know your stuff and and you're on top of uh, on the top of the research and have a clear clear view. I don't think that people can ask more of that more, more of you than that. Obviously, you haven't invested through an inflationary environment. And, and what challenges do you see on the horizon? 
Yeah, so I think I think this is a great question. It's very, very topical, as, as I'm sure you appreciate. And so I think there's, there's a few points that I would make, and actually it links back to some of the discussion that we've had thus far. So the, the last really major developed market inflationary period um, was in the 1970s. Uh, there were a couple of bouts of, of reflation back then. And, and, now, and now that's the best part of, you know, 50 years ago, um, you know, depending on exactly through the 70s, there were two spikes. So in the best case, 40 to 50 years ago. And I would argue that there are not many managers that will have seen a massive uh, period of, 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 of very, very high inflation in developed markets. However, what, what I would say is that we have gone through periodic cycles where reflation has become more of a concern. And, and 2018 was a prime example of that. And we saw the Federal Reserve hiking quite aggressively um, to, to potentially try and mitigate the risk of that as unemployment levels fell quite sharply. And similarly, I think we can learn a lot from history. And, and this, this is something I think is very, very key for the role. And it's, it's really a function of why I think age has little bearing on, on you know, the challenges you face. And that's the history is, is critical. You can learn a lot from past cycles. And even if you look hard enough in parts of the world that are currently experiencing inflation, you start to get an idea. Um, now, admittedly, emerging markets, they act quite differently. But the likes of Venezuela or Zimbabwe, um, Lebanon, Libya, or, or, you know, once again, something that's quite topical at the moment, Turkey, have all got very, very elevated levels of inflation. Uh, most of which, most of the ones I mentioned, actually comfortably in double digit, if not more, uh, territory per year. And so you can see glimpses of, of what it means. But I think you have to open the textbooks and you have to understand how uh, interest rates have evolved, how market dynamics change through past cycles and look at some of the constants as well as some of the things that differ. Um, and, and so I think, I think you, can really, you can really learn a lot from that and you can, you can deploy that in portfolio construction um, for the benefit of clients going forward. Well, I, I suppose inflation is traditionally seen as, as the enemy of the bond investor. Um, and and if, if we do go into an inflationary environment, how bad is it going to be for your portfolios? So in, in terms of the portfolios that I run, there's, there's, there's a number of different ones. They have slightly different mandates. So it's, it's, it's not quite as straightforward as that. But, the, but what I would say is that all of the portfolios that, that, that I look after, they have a lot of flexibility in terms of you know, the ability to move duration rate uh, duration around, uh, which is effectively your sensitivity to those interest rate moves. And so you're left with a key call uh, coming into the middle of this year. Um, as you get into May, uh, May or so, your year-over-year year base effect should be at their easiest. Um, and that's when you should have that year-over-year year peak in, in inflation. And so the key question that you're left with is, are we entering a new paradigm where inflation has to be uh, more at the forefront of, of people's minds and, and be uh, regarded as a higher concern as we enter a new paradigm uh, that we haven't seen since the 70s? Or alternatively, is this a bit of a head fake? And are the markets um, you know, acting in a way that they have done pretty much over the last uh, 40 years during the bond bull market? And at the moment, I, I'm very much of the belief that as we go through uh, into the second half of this year, that, that inflation uh, will start to uh, to see comps get harder. It will start to decline a little bit as you en enter the end of the year. And I don't think we've hit escape velocity uh, in terms of in terms of that more hyperinflation environment that people are concerned about. And and there's a number of reasons for that. Um, and it really comes down to things like capacity utilization and uh, and the fact that the labour force is in a very, very tricky spot. 
And, and those are key, a key criteria that I think have to be in a much better position for long-run inflation to be more of a concern, even with money supply levels uh, being up substantially year over year. And so, you know, when it comes to monetarist theory, I think you really have to consider velocity of money and some of the trends that are pushing that lower just as much as you have to consider the money supply side of that equation. Well, that's interesting then. If you're not potentially seeing um, a long-term inflationary environment, are there opportunities to be had? And what are you seeing? Yeah, so there are a number of opportunities that, that, that I see out there in the market. And I think ultimately um, there will be a great opportunity to phase this rise in government bond deal. Um, I think that there are a number of structural forces that are continuing to push them lower over time. And I think that this, this inflation narrative at this juncture is, is just that. It's a narrative based on base effects, based on bottlenecking, and based on the fact that you know money supply or M2 in the United States is running at around 25% year over year without too much consideration of what happens when we reopen. Um, we may have a sugar rush, but ultimately that de-bottlenecking could be disinflationary. Um, what happens if we see a bit of tapering um, uh, will that evolve uh, how inflation is priced in the markets? And, and simultaneously, actually, and I think this is a key point, uh, when it comes to uh, TIPS uh, or inflation-linked securities in the US, the Federal Reserve has been buying these aggressively uh, under its asset purchase program, and they've amassed more than a 20% uh, weighting of the whole market. And uh, the BIS, the, the Bank of International Settlements, released a report, a report a couple of months ago that was basically saying that um, they have been a dominant actor in that market and because it's quite a liquid uh, relative to the, the nominal treasury market and they've been buying it at, at such vast such vast quantities that it may have distorted real yields lower and therefore uh, market inflation pricing somewhat higher. And so that could be a source of the head fake um, and that could uh, act to support uh, pushing yields lower again and, and, and therefore um, support bond prices. But more specifically, um, I think I think one of the areas of interest to me at the moment is Chinese government bonds. Um, and there's a whole host of reasons for that. One, you know, demographics are very challenging there, and that's been a key function of developed markets in, in the Western world in terms of pushing bond yields lower. As, as an economy, it's very levered. Debt to GDP is, is north of 330% for the whole system there. Once again, that's something that tends to weigh on growth and, uh, and inflation over time. And... Um, and in terms of the differential between Chinese sovereign yields and various other markets across the developed world, a lot of them actually at some of the widest levels they've been in many, many years, uh, north of the, the 19th percentile. So you're getting decent value. Um, and don't forget, you've got positive real yields, and they're quite hard to find uh, across the developed world. So I think there's a number of reasons why Chinese government bond yields will converge to, towards some of the, the uh, other developed market sovereigns. I suppose the, the, the flip side with, with China is... Um you know, how do you feel about investing in, in China because of some of the ethical concerns there? Because we're not an impact fund and because the universe, especially in terms of the flexible funds that, that, that I'm a manager of, um, alongside one of my, my colleagues, Ariel Betzalel, um, you know, you're really challenged with a number of factors. One is what do, do the ESG criteria of the region in question mean in terms of bond pricing, in terms of tail risks? And as you're not... Um, not a not an impact investor. You have to consider all options. That peers will, uh, and, and so there's a there's a function of uh, valuation as well, and whether those risks are priced. So I think the next step is you know to try and engage with 
companies that operate in those markets and engage collectively uh, with with China um, to try and drive change um, because because we can all see that there are some uh, some elements of, of of reports that you know don't sit well with with many people. Or final point I'll raise is that China is entering a lot more government bond indices globally. Um, I believe you know it's it's already in the Barclays Global Aggregate. Uh, it also sits in the J.P. Morgan government bond indices. And as of Monday, I think they just just confirmed that China is going to enter the FTSE Russell uh, government bond index uh, from October with a with uh, a peak a peak weighting I think of five and a quarter percent. So it's becoming um, a, a part of the market that people can't ignore. Well, Harry, have you got any other points you'd like to add? Um, yeah, yeah, I think I think the the, the final point I would make is really on on, on fixed income valuations. Um, in, in the credit markets, um, in investment grade, um, we're back through the types that we saw coming into the pre-COVID period. So, you know, valuations are richer than they were before the coronavirus crisis, and we're still living through it. And that suggests a big pull forward um, and, and a repricing based on an improving outlook. Um, and and in high yield, you see a similar dynamic. Actually, in the United States and the U.S. high yield market, yields currently sit at an all-time low, give or take. Uh, and so you aren't getting paid a lot for for taking credit risk at this juncture. And so if if there are tail risks that do emerge over the next 12 to 18 months, and I think it's a possibility that that does happen, you can't rule that out, you're not being massively compensated for those tail risk shocks. And so I think I think actually, you know, one one source of alpha that maybe underappreciated is, is potentially reducing credit risk exposure slightly, favoring shorter dated credits in high yield where you can have Certainty of, of repayment or, uh, and refinancing, uh, and then and then on the other side of that, consider you know what assets might do well if that turbulence did emerge, and and so on the other side of that, you know that could potentially provide a bit of uh, a bit of uh, support to this, this government bond sell off that's been pretty much one way over the last uh, six months. So I think that that could be an interesting avenue to to, to, to look down um, if if we do see a bit of a shake up in this current market narrative. And is there an element of needing to have a bit of dry powder, sort of cash in the portfolio to buy into these opportunities? Yeah, and and and, and safe haven assets definitely provide that, and that's that's really what we saw through through twenty twenty through Q one and Q two is that you needed to have parts of the portfolio that were liquid during periods of stress that you could rotate into better opportunities as they emerged and valuations uh, were right sized based on based on the uh, the, the prevailing. Um, Market situation and, and the, the damage that was being done to the economy. So yes, I think I think that that's critical. I, I, I'm I'm not a believer in in the whole cash is cash is useless asset, especially you know if, if you're not being charged to 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 to, to hold it at negative interest rates um, as you are in Europe. So I think it does give you optionality, but so does so does so does an allocation to AAA. Uh, it can provide that ballast in in periods of turbulence and allow you to rotate um, your portfolio into opportunities as they arise. And, and I suppose posing the counterfactual is, 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 is much clearer, um, or at least it is to me anyway. If you are extremely long credit risk at this juncture, either in investment grade or high yield, and you, you're running no duration or relatively limited duration, and you have no safe havens in your portfolio, you're basically long long credit risk from the tightest point or, 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 there, or thereabouts in, in history, and you don't have a hedge on. And so, you know, from a portfolio construction perspective, from a stress testing perspective, 
um, you know, you, you, you'll be lacking some diversification there. So I think it's important to consider um, it, it, it consider the full range of scenarios when, when putting portfolios together. Well, Harry, thank you so much for joining me. Absolute pleasure. And thank you for having me.